Okay, so we are in Acts, Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, open up your Bible to Acts chapter 9. We like to preach through books of the Bible. We're in Acts. We're going to be there at least until Easter season. We'll do a series on the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, his expiation, his propitiation. We throw a lot of $5 words around, and uh, I'm excited about that. We'll have a good Friday service and then Easter morning, and then we'll go back to Acts and finish up until we get to the summer, and we'll have a short series. We like to take breaks in between, but primarily we go through books of the Bible. We are in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read our scripture lesson, then we'll dismiss the kids. Bible's in the back if you don't have one. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Yet Saul rose up from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And to the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the ruler of the universe said, Go. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, He was strengthened. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, we open up and see this conversion of of, of Saul, Paul. Um, Help us to uh, not only uh, take in what has happened, but look to application for our own lives. That you would speak to our hearts individually and corporately as your children. Father, bless the kids as they go and the teachers that are teaching. Lord, we pray that uh, they too would come to understand and to learn and to grow and to treasure Christ and the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, you're dismissed. Boy Scout uniform and everything. Oh. We're studying the book of Acts. Spirit-empowered mission is what we are calling it. Chapter 9 is where we find ourselves and probably one of the most important conversion events recorded in the book of Acts. A man named Saul of Tarsus. 
comes face to face, probably more face to fist with Jesus, King Jesus, and the church and the world will never be the same. I think you can equate this important event as I'm thinking about it this week to, to almost to the calling of Abraham. God's conversion of Abraham and God's calling of Abraham literally changed all of mankind. It's hard to overemphasize the importance of Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, coming to faith. It's hard to, it's almost, I could almost do injustice to it on how important it is for Christianity, for the world, the impact that he had. He wrote at least 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He unpacked so much theology for us. Paul, in many respects, is the most important New Testament figure other than Jesus, of course, in all of the New Testament. If you've been tracking with us, you know that Luke, the human author of Acts, gave us a clear outline that, uh, of the work of the Spirit-empowered mission in chapter 1 of, and uh, uh, verse 8. Jesus orders his followers to stay in Jerusalem. You'll be baptized with the Spirit. Power will come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where Pentecost took place. In Samaria, we've seen the gospel go there. And then, no, first in Judea, that's surrounding Jerusalem, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Up to chapter 7, that's where the focus has been. The disciples were witnessing in Jerusalem, and thousands of people came to faith. I want to remind you that the Greek word for witness is the word martyr. Over 35 times in, in, in Acts, it is mentioned, and, and the definition is for someone who stands up and gives testimony to something they know to be true. Not hearsay, not rumor, not good advice, but a factual historical reality. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He's exalted in heaven. He calls everyone everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel where there is forgiveness of sins. Grace and mercy flows from the cross as we sang. This is the good news. This is what the church was called to do, to be witnesses of that reality. There's nothing that we can do. Jesus already done it. There's not a moral ladder to climb. It's a person to receive and a proclamation of what he has done. Sometimes I think, I wonder sometimes if we think we have to convince people of this great advice that we have for them rather than just declaring the truth of what Jesus has done. Chapter 7, we saw our first martyr. His name was Stephen. He stood up and he witnessed about God. He, he witnessed about Jesus' perfect life, his resurrection from the grave, and they stoned him to death. And, and, the, and the church was persecuted and many fled Jerusalem. The gospel went just as the outline tells us. It went from Jerusalem then to Judea, and then out to Samaria. And Samaria, as we know, was a hated people. And God had to show the Jewish people and the Samaritan people that there's a connection, that, that salvation comes from the Jews, and the hated race that, that the Jews did not want anything to do with, that God was for. And God's for you today. God's for you today. And we see the gospel and people sharing their faith going out of Jerusalem through Judea and into Samaria just as the outline of the Holy Spirit told us in Acts 1.8. Last week, Ricky did a great job showing us the beginning stages of the gospel going to the rest of the world because an Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile, came to faith. The angel of the Lord told Philip, uh, another deacon, another one that was per persecuted, that fled Jerusalem, he said, rise and go to the south 
and go to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And the spirit said, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. Go up to the chariot. And he goes into the chariot, and, he, and the guy's reading the scroll of, of Isaiah. It's like, you know what you're reading? I have no idea. And, and he shares the gospel. And he comes to faith, and he's baptized. And then the spirit transports, I love it, Philip to Azutus. Reminds me of, uh, of, of something off of Star Trek. You know, I thought about what would that look like today? You know, beam me up and beam me there. It's like crazy, man. But, but God is good and God does what God wants. And there's not a soul that God can't reach. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, what about that so-and-so in the middle of somewhere in the hut? Some, God can transport people like Star Trek if he wants to. So that, that, that there's not really a, a question to be asked, right? So he takes the gospel, and, and this man comes to faith, and now the, this gospel that's going out to the rest of the world, it, the, this gateway has been opened, and of course, now we get to chapter 9, where Saul the apostle, I'm going to say Saul, I'm going to say Paul, I might mix it up, it's the same person. He gets converted. It's so important, it's so significant that it's mentioned two other times in the book of Acts, chapter 22 and chapter 26, as he tells this story of his conversion experience. So we'll look at this passage under three headings, and the first one is the continued persecution, because Acts chapter 9, verse 1, connects what was said back in chapter 8, or end of chapter 7, verse 8, about Saul. So he's reintroduced. So we see the continued persecution of Saul. He's not done persecuting the church. And then we see this, this confrontation that Saul has with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, we'll look at the actual conversion of Saul. The continued persecution. Look at verse 1. But Saul, going back to chapter 7 and in the beginning of 8, we pick it up again. Saul, Saul, the one that was at the feet of Stephen when he was murdered, was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. In fact, he went to the high priest and he asked them for letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know, there are certain events in life, in your life, in my life, that sit dormant until another event, another event kind of triggers an emotional and intellectual, intellectual avalanche. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. You never hear of a good song being played or an old movie. Some music comes on and it brings you back to the glory days. You're thinking, man, I remember those days, you know. Didn't have, you know, two nickels to rub together, no, free, no, no cares in the world. and just life was all, that was all so good. But sometimes there are events in our lives that we have maybe suppressed and now other things have triggered that and they come to life that are not as good. It was Abraham Lincoln who remembered the horror which he felt having taken a flatboat trip from Mississippi in 1831, arriving in New Orleans and for the first time Abraham Lincoln saw a slave auction. 32 years later, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but he himself said it was that incident 32 years earlier that ignited his thinking. That incident what drove him. That incident is what motivated him for a long time. In verse 1, we are reintroduced to Saul the Pharisee. He was first talked about in chapter 7 and 8 when Stephen was, con- he was standing by Stephen consenting to Stephen's death. And now he's breathing threats and he's still coming after the churches 
and, and the Christians. It says back in chapter 6 that Stephen was the one that, that Paul was, was standing by watching him get stoned to death. It says that Stephen was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. It also says he was full of grace and power that many in the synagogues, chapter 6, many in the synagogues rose up to dispute him, but no one could withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was preaching, which he was witnessing. That no one could stand against his power and his wisdom and the work of the spirit, that no one included Saul of Tarsus. I believe it propelled him on mission. That incident that happened way back there, or at least for, you know, sometime back, gave him a new goal in life. It was, it was the impetus of his actions. He saw the work of Christ and, and the proclamation of Christ and the claim that Jesus is his risen Lord as heresy. And it angered him. He was there when Stephen looked up and saw the glory of God and said, I see the Son of Man seated at the right, standing at the right hand of the Father saying that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is ruler, Jesus will judge the world, and it was blasphemous to Paul. And it would be blasphemous today if it were not true. To show how bad this is, and I I want to press this home, look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 1, and I want to skip over this, I want to look at it, Just, just show it to you. Verse 2 says that he got the letters, he went to Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, Men or women. Like, didn't care about the kids having no family. He was going in homes and dragging out men and the women. That's how angry he was. He didn't care. His hatred for Christ and his followers, he, and, 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 he, and he felt that any suffering he inflicted on them was good and it was right. Acts chapter 9 says that he acquired letters. He was on his way to Damascus, about 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It was an important city. It was a day's journey, excuse me, a week's journey. It was on the border of the uh, Arabian Desert. It was a commercial center. It was a busy place. It had what they called the the, the ten ten Hellenistic cities known as Decapolis. In other words, it had a a large Jewish population. you know, uh, culture. It had a lot of Jewish people there. There were synagogues there. It's the first time it's ever mentioned that uh, the gospel disciples were outside of Jerusalem. It was an important city. It's also, if you notice in our text, it's the first time that the Jesus followers are called the way. The way. That's what they were called. Because Jesus said what? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Over and over again, he, he declared the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to creator God, the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, in its end, that's way to death. As we look at this conversion experience of Paul, we see this, this, um, this continued persecution and, and this conversion experience. I want to point out something that's important and I think very applicable today for us. The issue that Saul is facing and that all of us in this room have to deal with is this, okay? Follow me. Am I going to let God shape my understanding of him or am I going to be so prideful that I am going to declare my worldview is right, not his? Do I have enough smarts and enough wisdom to figure out all of life, death, and eternity? 
You see, Saul's worldview, his understanding of who he was and who God was, had to be radically changed. And the change had to come from outside of Paul. All his education, all his Bible knowledge, all his studying, all his prayers, all the times he went to church, didn't change him. See, that's the mark of genuine conversion. Saul came face to face with the real God, the historical person, the eternal son of God. Saul had to get over himself. Saul had to get over himself. His own perception of who he says God was in his own mind because God cannot be understood or known through our imagination, through our speculation, through fabrication, Even through our own inspiration, I feel inspired. It's through revelation. God has to reveal himself to us. The God that Saul was worshiping, the one he created, the one he wanted, the God that he was serving was one he created. He constructed in his own heart. But then he was confronted by the truth. The real God of the Bible. And God revealed himself not only through his work and his word, but ultimately through his son. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, Long ago, many times, God spoke to our fathers and the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sin sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels Paul had to come face to face with the living God with the true and living God you see here's the thing the Jesus the God the Jesus that you make up in your own mind the one that you conjure up in your own thinking, okay? The one that fits in your own desires can't change you because it's really you. For Saul had to be thinking that God could never, ever make the temple obsolete. obsolete. God could never come in weakness and be crucified. Christians have, to got it, have gotten it all wrong. So I ask you, what kind of God have you constructed in your own heart, in your own desires? Is it the God that you are making up so that you feel better about yourself? Or is it the God of the Scripture? Is it the real God of creation? Maybe you've got a God that's love and he's not holiness. You know what? That God can't contradict you. He can't challenge you. He can't transform you. He can't call you to repentance because everything is just rosy. Maybe some of you constructed a God that's so holy he wants nothing to do with you. He's so uh, other than us and so perfect that, you know what? Either he doesn't care or there's no way I can approach him. Listen, only a God that can come to you and show you how holy he is, how holy he is, how perfect he is, and can show you how much you're loved, how much you are forgiven. Only that kind of God can change you can forgive you, can heal you. Like Saul, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be transformed, if you want to be changed, and you need the real Jesus, not the Jesus we conjure up, not the Jesus of our own minds, not the Jesus that we constructed with our own heart. 
Who's going to tell you, I love you, I forgive you, when you feel and know what you did was wrong? Who's going to tell you that I care about you when you've blown it? What God is going to tell you things that you don't want to hear, but you know, but you know that you must? John tells us, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before our God. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Got to be outside of you. Paul had to come to that conclusion. Paul had to come to that reality. A God who is not bigger and not greater and not superior. A God that, that won't condemn us, who forgives us, has to be greater than the God of our own construction of our own hearts. And Paul, in his continued persecution of the church, is about to see how true that really is. Do you, this morning? Are you willing to submit to a God that's greater and superior and bigger than you? Are you willing to come to God and say, as Paul will say, you're God, I'm not. I'm not going to try to figure all things out, but show yourself to me. Are you willing to admit that you're not as smart as you think you are? And no amount of imagination or speculation or even your inspiration can reveal to you the things that God wants to show you that must come through God revealing himself to us. Saul came to realize the reality and by sheer grace it completely changed. He's confronted with the truth and, it, and, his, and his world is about to turn upside down. Verse three. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love this story. Jesus comes to Saul, not in that still, small voice, but he comes like an MMA, you know, fighter and just falls flat on his back. Now, now we look at this confrontation and we look at this conversion. Let me say this. There's not one template, not one method on how people come to faith. So you say, you know what? No one ever knocked me over a horse. I never seen no shining light. It doesn't always work that way. There are quieter conversions. There are more, you know, uh, kind of dramatic conversions. Uh, Cornelius is a dramatic conversion. A Philippian jailer, dramatic. Last week we saw a man just riding in a chariot and Philip comes and shares the gospel. Lydia in chapter 16 of Acts, God just opens her heart to respond to the gospel which Paul's preaching to, a really cool stuff. Some of you had that dramatic conversion. I know I did. Okay, I, I, you know, hardcore drugs, running the streets. You know, God knocked me off my, my, my perch. Yet my wife will tell you of a story of a much quieter faith, how she experienced God more in a gradual way in work in her life. I mean, that, that would make sense if you know me. I'm hard-headed. I need to get smacked. She's much more reasonable, and God could just show himself to her. Everybody's like, yeah, that's true. So here's Paul on his way to do what he thinks he's doing for the glory of God, and all of a sudden, the true glory of God shows up. A giant light from heaven, and the hunter becomes the hunted. Paul, Saul, on the road, God comes, comes after Saul, comes after Paul. And this incident in Paul's mind, I believe, was burned not only says it twice in the book of Acts, but all throughout the epistle, if you read Paul's letters and you keep this thought, this incident, this conversion, what happened to Paul in the forefront of your minds and read the epistles, you'll say, oh, Paul's reliving it again. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? All rhetorical questions. The answer is yes. Again in chapter 15, on the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely and born, he appeared to me. And then I love this verse. He writes to to the Corinthians in the second letter, chapter 4. Listen to this verse. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, Even if our gospel is veiled, he will be veiled soon, to those who are perishing, in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, Paul was blind, to the truth. He says to keep them from seeing, listen, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Tell me Paul was not going. I saw that glorious light in the face of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus when I saw him face to face. That was the Damascus rose. That was the blinding light. That was the voice that spoke from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice he says, he doesn't say, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because it's personal. Jesus takes it personal. To persecute the way is to persecute Jesus. He identifies with his disciples so that when we suffer, he suffers. When we are persecuted, he is persecuted. Why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Most commentators say when when he used the word Lord there, it was not necessarily Lord, ruler of the world. He was just acknowledging reverence, not really sure what was going on. I think at that moment when when he gets knocked down, looks up at that second, I don't think he was really sure what what will happen, but that'll change because Jesus answers, I am Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I'll tell you, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I, I don't know if I could do justice to this passage. Paul, born of Tarsus, a Pharisee, Saul, again, Saul and Paul, same person, very uh, important city of Sicilia, south coast of Turkey. Saul was a Roman citizen, which was important in those days. Uh, In Philippians 3, he says that he followed the law of Moses impeccably, circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrew, to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. We know he studied under Gamaliel, a very important, popular teacher. Gamaliel, we, we saw that earlier. Uh, he's also, Gamaliel is also the grandson of a guy named Hillel, who's a very famous rabbi. So Paul was a very educated, smart leader, although going in the wrong direction, a devout man of the Bible and the law and going to church. He knew the law. In fact, the law says in Deuteronomy 21, and he talks about this in Galatians, cursed is everyone, cursed is the man that hangs upon a tree. Paul knew that. Saul knew that. Up to now, Saul was sure that Jesus, the cursed one, is dead. Do you really expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is now the Messiah? Would God take a cursed prophet and make him the Messiah? I don't think so. 
He knew that Jesus' followers, he heard the, the teachings, he heard the preaching that the apostles were saying, in the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Jesus, I preach that this, this Jesus is alive. That's what they were saying, that he's healing people even to this day. And he thought, that's blasphemous. I'll eliminate them. Who are these Jewish Christians dare to say that the Jewish Messiah who's been crucified was the Messiah of the Old Testament? It was offensive, blasphemous to him. But now he's confronted with the risen Lord. There is, I don't, I don't know, another person on the planet in that day that would have had the hardest time believing that Jesus Christ not only is alive, but he's Lord God of the universe in which he teaches. Paul was taught all his life that God is transcendent and holy and other than man. God's been told all his life, Saul's been told all his life that the Ten Commandments, the first one is to worship no one else but God alone. All his life. And yet we see this complete turnaround from this Jewish Pharisee and theologian because he comes face to face and confronted with the risen Lord. It's because of the encounter with Jesus Christ, Paul's worldview, Paul's understanding of God, Paul's reality completely changes. Paul come, came to realize, I believe, that Jesus was indeed cursed, but not for his own sin. But he was cursed on our behalf. He was cursed in our place. He bore the judgment that we deserved. And all of a sudden, his worldview changed, and he was challenged, and Jesus confronts him and says, I am Jesus. I am the one that you are persecuting, face to face with the real God. The conversion. said earlier, as I said earlier, everyone has a different story, but elements of our conversion. So let, let me back up. What I'm saying is, Paul's conversion, the experience, the method which God uses is different with everyone, is different. So people come to faith in different ways. But when people come to faith, when people are truly, genuine, born of God, converted, they're walking with Jesus, they love Jesus, they're children of God, there are certain characteristics, there are certain things about being born anew that we would see that everyone shares. How we get there, way God works through circumstances may be different, but there are things that we're going to see in Paul's life that all of us will share if we are truly children of God, if the conversion has truly taken place in our life. Okay, we've already seen that there's an encounter with the real God. We can't, we can't come to God in our own conjecture, our own rational uh, understanding. We have to come to God and let him reveal himself to us through Scripture and through the Word and through the living Word, who's Jesus. And now, right here, before chapter 6 in your Bible, um, as we read chapter 6, I don't have them all up because there were too many verses, but chapter 9, verse 6 is this. Um, he says, I am Jesus whom you have persecuted, verse 5, and then but rise, he says, enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, when Paul tells that story in other places in the book of Acts, I believe it's in chapter 22, verse 10, what happens is, because she's telling the whole story, it's not that they're different, but you put all three stories together and you get the full story. Um, what he says to, he gets knocked down, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And then Paul says, what shall I do? So between verse 5 and verse 6, Acts 22 tells us, he says, what shall I do? And Jesus says to him, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. In verse 6. 
And that's an important element. Because what Paul is saying first, after he gets knocked down and says, oh, you're Jesus, the first thing Paul does is, is, is say, what do you want me to do? There's a consecration. There's, there's a, I'm done running. I'm done persecuting. There's nothing left for me to do. What do you want, Lord? What do you want from me? I mean, think about it. He's blasted off his horse. He sees the glory of God. He's in no position to start telling God what he should do. When you come to faith, when, when, you, when you yield your life, when you trust Christ, when you receive Christ, when you yield to Christ as Savior and Lord, you do both. You are, he is, becomes the Lord of your life. He saves you from your sin. He is the king. We are the servants. Some people teach that you receive Christ as Savior and then later on down the journey of discipleship, he now becomes your Lord. That's not true. When you receive Christ and you yield to Christ and you bow your knee to Christ and you trust Christ, you receive them and, and he comes as who he is. He's Lord. That's, there's no option. Now, all of us struggle with who's taking Lord of our lives, even as Christians. Sometimes we want to take back our own will. I get that. Sometimes we want to do what I want. I get that. But true conversion is a place where we go, I'm not the king anymore. I'm not the Lord anymore. Someone is bigger and greater and better than me and rose for me and died for me. and He's Lord. I'm not. If life is for you, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I go and do my own thing. There's no battle. There's no struggle. Then you really have to question whether or not you're a child of God. Paul said, what do you want? What am I, what am I to do? There, there's that yielding. There's that, you know, the, the, the passion of, our, of his will now became the passion of what God wants for him. And then you know that something's changing when it's not my desire, not my will be done, but yours be done. Again, there's a battle. I get that. But if there's no battle, you have to question. Second, let me tell you, in order to rise from the ground, you have to be what? Flat on your back, right? The end of yourself. And let me tell you, it's that place that God finds you that he's about to change you. When you're flat on your face with no place to go, God shows himself to Saul and to Paul, and he's greatly humbled, and he's dealing with conviction, conviction of sin. It says, Saul rose from the ground, his eyes were open. He didn't see anything. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. So he didn't eat or drink for three days. I don't think, I don't think he went into this religious fast time. Let me just fast. I don't think so. I think it's like a person who is mourning over, 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 over the death of a loved one. You just can't eat. You just, your stomach, just, you just have no desire for food. And there Paul is mourning over his sin, has lost his appetite. Again, in chapter 22, Paul's rehearsing this to, to Agrippa. We'll get to that when we get there. But when he falls to the ground, Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? And then he says in verse uh, 22, verse 16, it is hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goads. Now, if you're like me, you grew up, and I didn't have a Bible, I didn't grow up my Bible, I had to look that up. Unless you're a farmer, I guess you would get that. But a goat is a long stick, sometimes very big, with a very sharp point, and it would used to be poking the oxen who wouldn't move, who wouldn't do his job out in the field. And sometimes the oxen would kick 
against the pointy thing that you're trying to get him moving along, and it would actually hurt himself. He's just doing damage to himself. In other words, it's pointless. It's useless. It's, you know, it's, it's effort. You know, there's nothing you're getting at us but only hurting yourself. So Jesus is saying, Saul, you're kicking against the gospel. You're kicking against the work of the Spirit of God, and it's pointless. The goes, these, these harmful and, and hurtful actions of Paul was his inability and futile ways of dealing with his guilt. I think the kicking of the goads probably had to do with Stephen, who prayed right in front of Saul, who's about to murder him, forgive them for what they're doing to me. Oh my word, can you imagine someone saying that to you? What about all the people that he dragged off and their children are crying? And I mean, all this is rehearsing in his mind. Romans 1 tells us that um, each of us, because of what God placed in us, knows right from wrong. Saul had been living, I think, with horrible conflict, believing that what he was doing was right, yet he knew it was wrong, and there was guilt in his life, and he kept kicking against the goad. I wonder if he ever said to himself, I wonder if he ever said, how can people suffer like this willingly? and die for something that's not true. How could they do that? Paul's kicking and kicking. He knew something was wrong, but at that, right before this point, he was unwilling to examine himself. He was unwilling to repent. He, was, he, he had oppressed his guilt by silence and, 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 and by kicking against the goad, by continuing uh, the pursuit and assault of the church. And what was the result? He was broken. The raging persecutor had become uh, had been reduced to rubble. Saul is humbled. And now in silence, I believe, three days, unable to eat, he had to be reflecting and thinking, at, like, what have I been doing? Right? And notice, Paul's not the one leading anybody anymore. It says that he's being led by the hand. And in some ways, even though Saul was blind, I think at those three days, he was probably seeing more than he's ever seen before. I wonder if some of you are like Saul of Tarsus. I wonder if you're here today and you've been kicking against the goads. You've heard over and over again that Jesus Christ loves you. He went to the cross for you. He was buried. He rose again. He forgives you of your sins. Put your trust in him. But every time you hear that call, you do your best to quench it. You you kick against the goad. And it hurts. Your guilt and your shame. But you don't want to respond. You don't want to turn to Christ. You want to continue to try to live and be your own Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He lived the perfect life. One that we could never live. He died a death that we should have died so that we can have life. Or maybe you're kicking against the goads today. Maybe, maybe you never came to faith and maybe all the stuff that you keep hearing, God is, God is, God is uh, uh, pricking you and God is calling you and you, and, and you just won't respond. Or maybe there's sin in your life right now that you keep going back to, going back to, going back to, and God is bringing conviction in your life and you keep kicking against the goats. Maybe God has called you to go somewhere and do something. Speak to someone. Go to a foreign land. Go to Bible college, go to a church, whatever it is, as a pastor, and you don't want to hear it. God's challenges and God confronts us because he loves us. 
Paul's conversion that began with consecration and conviction now led to a special calling. Look at verse 10 with me. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Now, now stop right there. We don't hear much about Ananias. We heard about a guy named Ananias in chapter 5, and God whacked him, right? He was dead. He lied to God, and God killed him. But here's this guy, Ananias, who had a major impact on the church. I mean, who among us can tell me, anybody can tell me, and if you can, you can say it out loud, who led Billy Graham to faith? Maybe one person may know here. But whoever that was, I'm sure glad that he responded to the call of God to go share the gospel with Billy Graham, right? D.L. Moody, Jim Elliott. You hear about these people who, who so many people came to faith, but you don't hear about the person that led them to faith. But God knows, that's okay, God knows. Here's Ananias, you never hear about Ananias. He took the apostle Paul and led him to faith. He was a man who was devoted and a man of courage. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, I'm available. That, that's, what it, what, that's the Greek term there. So I'm here, I'm available, what do you want? I'll obey. He said to him, listen, rise, go to the street called Straight. By the way, it's still there to this day. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named Tarsus, named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered like, really, are you kidding? That's what I would have said. Lord, I have heard from, from many about this guy. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Like, you want me to go to North Korea and do what? But the Lord said to him, no, okay, good, I got that, but I want you to go. For Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, the children of Israel. For I will show him, that Saul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So good, devoted, responsive, obedient Ananias departs and enters the house. I'd love to have been there for that. You know what I mean? Got full armor. I don't know what he's got. You know what I mean? Just like sneaking around the door. But he goes, he, he obeys. Right? Ananias lays hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord appeared to you on the road, sent me to tell you and to say to you and that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose. He was baptized. He took food. He was strengthened. Some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. Now, I, I don't think it, it's easy nor necessary to pinpoint the exact moment that Saul became a Christian. I think it was a process like many of us. I think, I think Paul's conversion began way back, okay? I mean, even God was working on his heart as, we, as, as he was uh, watching Stephen die, I believe. You know what I mean? I mean, before the foundation of the world, he called Saul to be Paul, to be an apostle. One thing we can say is that Ananias was called to, to, to go to Paul for a divine purpose and to, to know of and to share the divine calling that Saul, Paul, had on his life. And if you notice in our text, it says, behold, he was praying. The word behold is like, you're not going to believe this. Oh, my word. You ready for this? Paul's actually praying. Now, Pharisees pray. They recite their prayers. That's not what this means. Paul is praying. What a joy it must have been for Ananias. Think about this. Obama, you know, Osama bin Laden, uh, some of the wicked, most vilest, people who love to kill others he calls him brother what an encouragement it must have been Ananias what a joy it must have been once he got through like I can't believe I'm doing this a joy it must have been for Ananias and he lays hands on him and he recovers his sight 
and he is filled with the Spirit. Because you have been chosen, called to carry the name of Jesus, he tells Paul. And he lays on his hands on him and scales fall from his eyes. Paul receives the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe, as we've been looking at the book of Acts, starting with Acts chapter 1 with Pentecost, I believe that the reason that Ananias was sent and the reason that Ananias laid his hands on Paul was to identify and to confirm and to commission and to associate Saul, Paul of Tarsus with Pentecost. The same God that came at Pentecost, the same God that poured out his spirit on the Samaritans is the same God now who is working in the life of Saul, Paul, the apostle. And he lays hands on him. Everything in the case, it was was sort of like a mini Pentecost for the apostle. Everything in the case that the Lord is behind all that is taking place. And now Saul, the persecutor, with a letter from the high priest, now is Saul, the witnessing apostle to the world, commissioned by Jesus. The heavenly calling was trumped, has trumped, has trumped the original earthly mission. Witnessing can be costly. And it's ironic, I think, that Saul is persecuting and, and causing all this turmoil in the church and he says you know what you're gonna i'm gonna show the world how much you must suffer for my name to get to get what you've been given probably even some more to show my grace and my mercy to the world can you imagine saul think for a minute he's a bible scholar a bible scholar old testament bible scholar and all of a sudden the light goes on Jesus is the suffering servant. Oh, that makes perfect sense, Isaiah 53. You know, all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, man, the son that was promised to Abraham and to Adam back in Jesus, I mean, it must have been explosive for him to see all the Old Testament pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. This brilliant Bible scholar's heart must have exploded. The Pharisee Saul was on a mission of of self-willed desires, wanting to kill those heretics, feeding his pride, feeding his lust, climbing the religious ladder of prominence, and now he becomes this earthen vessel filled with God's treasure with a new purpose of bringing glory to Jesus. To bringing glory to Jesus. Previously, he inflicted suffering on others. Now he's called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Previously, he came against and he despised the Gentile. Now he's called to go to the Gentile to share the treasures of Christ and the gospel. The story of Paul's conversion in many ways is remarkable, yet practical for all of us. If God has called you to himself to be a clean vessel, useful for the master, prepared for every good work, remember, God calls us and sends us out. We are saved to serve. When we become Christians, our vocation becomes our avocation because our new vocation is to serve, to worship, to be on mission with Christ. No matter what your job is, no matter what your vocation is, your new vocation as a Christian is to live on mission with Jesus, first and foremost. First and foremost. Warren Worsby said it this way, the Lord had a special work for Saul to do. The Hebrew of the Hebrews become the apostle to the Gentiles. The persecutor would become a preacher. And the legalistic Pharisee would become the great proclaimer of the grace of God. Up to now, Saul had been like a wild animal fighting against the goads. But now he would become a vessel of honor. The Lord's tool to preach the gospel in the regions and beyond. What a transformation. End of quote. 
So what can we say to this radical transformation and conversion? That Christ is always the initiator. Jesus Christ is still seeking sinners like us. And he's still seeking sinners today. Jesus is the hero of this story. Jesus orchestrated the Damascus confrontation and he directs our encounters as well. I want to end with the story of C.S. Lewis, a book called Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis, an atheist, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and describes his conversion through uh, uh, his writings in Surprised by Joy. And he writes this. He says, The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears a moment of holy free choice. I could open a door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was present as a duty. Neither choice was present as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either. Though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corslet meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous. But it was also strangely unemotional. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. Ambial agnostics will talk cheerfully about a man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. I gave in and admitted that God was God. I knelt and prayed, and perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his feet. But who can duly adore the Lord, which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? The the word compels them to come in. Have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. He says, but properly understood, they plumb the depth of divine mercy. And then he ends with this. The hardness of God, listen, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men and his compulsion is our liberation. Christ is always the hunter and the initiator. Sometimes it seems that it's harsh, but it's grace. It's a place where he brings us to our knees, acknowledging how desperate we need him. And if there's anyone at the end of life that says, I need to be poor in spirit, I need it to be broken in spirit, it was the Apostle Paul. For whatever I have, he said, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, the Damascus roads are generally uh, less dramatic. Maybe some of your roads were. But they all have the same effect. It's the place of complete dependency upon God, a place of, 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 of brokenness, a removal of arrogance to bring us to our salvation and to reconstruct our hearts to the one and true living God. Now, one more minute. I'm going to call the band up, and I want you to close your Bibles. I want you to look at me for one minute. One more minute. Jesus said in Matthew 18, I don't have it up there, Matthew 18, 3, unless you are converted, unless you turn, converted in AS, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, born anew, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Conversion is what we do, we turn, the new birth is what God does, both happens at conversion, at at faith and genuine faith in God. So I want to ask you as we close, how do you know? We look at this. We say, have I been 
Have I gone to the place of saying, I'm not Lord. I am now separating myself from my sin, from my world, from doing my thing, and I'm going to live on to God. I know I can't do it perfectly, but I know that he died for me, he rose for me, he empowered me to live a life of obedience to him. Because he loves me, because he died for me, I will respond in grateful obedience. Have you come to that place? Have you been consecrated? Have you come to the place, are you coming regularly to the place, not my will but yours be done? Have you been convicted of your sin? Not just remorse that I got caught, not just remorse for doing bad things, but conviction that your sin is against your God, the creator of the universe. Have you repented of your sins? Have you been like Paul and Saul, broken about your sin? Are you willing to, to be called out of your, 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 your routine, out of what you want, and to sacrifice, and to go to where God wants you to go? Those are elements, those are pictures, those are the reality of a true converted heart. There's consecration, there's conviction, and there's that calling of God to come out of the darkness, to have the eyes removed, the Spirit of God come, opening my heart and calling me to sacrifice and live on mission. That's, that's, that's conversion. So maybe you're here this morning. There's no neutral, by the way. There's no neutrality. You, you can't be neutral. Well, I don't believe one way or the other. Jesus said, either with me or against me. You're with me or you're against me. So we're going to call the whole church to, to respond. For those of you who know Jesus, those of you who trust Jesus, what are you kicking against? Who does God want you to speak to? Where does he want you to go? What does he want you and where does he want you to witness? Who does he want you to talk to? And maybe you're, not, you're here and you're not a Christian. It's time to stop kicking against the goats. We're going to sing a song called All I Have is Christ. I once was lost in darkness night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to, to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would still refuse you still. And, but Christ is all I have. Christ, Christ is all we have. So let's respond in faith today as a family. Let's stand together as we respond. Father, thank you for this message, this, this opportunity to see you work mightily through Saul, Paul, the apostle. And God, I pray for all of us here this morning that when we sing, it's not just singing, it's not just words on a screen, it's not just vocaling back what the band is doing, but it comes from the depths of our hearts. All we have is Christ. Tired of running away, I am running too. I'm to worship and treasure Jesus and lay my life down before him. That's our prayer.